Ephesians chapter 6. Father, I want to come this morning. Your word is light. It is truth. And I pray that it would speak to us and challenge us, God, as only you can do in and through it. So we pray your blessing upon this time in Jesus' strong name. Amen. Coming to one of these great Bible chapters today. As we wind down our study in Ephesians, I'm not sure if I'm going to do another week or not. Um, there's so much here, but we'll all know probably by the time I'm done with first service. Paul ends this letter with a stirring call to battle. He reminds every one of us that we are engaged in this high-stakes battle called spiritual warfare. He's saying, if you're a Christ follower, you need to be equipped and you need to understand what the stakes are. Now, I believe this passage not only prepares us for how to fight in the battle, but it gives us insight into why so many Christ followers struggle and fall, never move forward in their faith. Because if you don't do these things, if you don't engage these things in your life, you're going to have a hard time moving forward. Now, God knows that we're in this spiritual fight that's why he gives us this, because he wants us to be able to stand against the schemes and the plans of the enemy. I believe this, and we've kind of said this throughout the whole study of Ephesians, that God has strategically placed you. He has strategically placed me in the place that we are. Acts 17 says as much, that God has placed us in this time, in this place, in this locale, in this season of history for his purposes, not for yours but for his. And Jesus enters your world on Monday in and through you and me. And he has created this weaponry to defeat and to block the evil advancements of the enemy. Wherever you and I come as children of the light, as we talked about in Ephesians 5, it is really set up to be a roadblock from the forces of the enemy and evil. Now, I, I just tell you something that I've really gotten into the last two years. I never thought I would, but I, uh, <clears throat> uh, I, the, the, a lot of the staff uh, got me into this thing called fantasy football. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm usually up at about 5.30 or 6 in the morning. I do my devotional time. And then right after that, I head to the computer and I, and I start looking at my guys and who I, can, who I can drop and get rid of and who I can improve because right now my renegades are just getting killed. And, but I, I, I spend now time literally strategizing on how I can do better and beat some of these other young yahoos that sucked me into it on our staff. But what I've learned is, is it really does. It takes a little bit of time. You can't just throw it out there and let it happen because if you do, you're probably going to lose. You've got to pay attention. You've got to engage. You're in a battle. And just like fantasy football, except for the stakes, you're so much higher, loved ones. And what we're going to see today is that evil is going to come, but there's qualities that will frustrate and block the advancement of the adversary. If you're a person of truth in whom righteousness dwells, if your life is dedicated to peace, if you're a person of growing faith, if you're a person who's living in the wholeness of salvation, who knows the word of God and walks in it, to the degree you do this, you are someone that will block the strategies of Satan. But hear me, the adverse is true too. To the degree that you do not participate in these things, 
you become a gateway for evil to come into your life, into your home, into your work, wherever you are. See, what if we changed our mentality and our understanding and we saw that each one of us has a strategic placement in this world? Not for just the purpose of expressing Jesus Christ, which is our ultimate purpose, but we're also here to be a roadblock and to thwart the advances of the adversary. See, God has taken this relocation of his living in us to a radical dimension. And he says, I want you to live as light in the world. He has commanded us not to develop institutions that will thwart the economic difficulties that we have or the political apparatus that we face. But he says, I am in you to be where you are to make a strategic difference. And I think some of us need to change our mindset to understand that when you go to work tomorrow, when you go home today, there's something of the life of Jesus Christ in you that he says you will either advance the work of Christ or you will allow the work of the enemy into those situations and those places. So I want you to see a couple of things here. I want you to know your enemy today. I want us to read here, Ephesians chapter 6, beginning at verse 10. It says this, finally, he's like any great preacher. I'm almost done, but finally. And then he gets into this whole incredible study. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Notice where this comes. It comes after he's talked about, well, personal relationships, marital relationships, child and parent relationships, boss and employee or employer and employee relationships. Now he talks about spiritual warfare because really that's what you're dealing with in all of those dimensions, as you'll see in just a moment. But he says, finally be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. If you want to note something that I think is, well, I'll get to it at the end. Uh, He says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, he repeats this phrase, put on the full armor of God, not parts, not some things, but put on the full thing, so that when the day of evil comes, and it will, it does, it shall, every one of us is going to face him. When that comes, you may be able to stand your ground. Notice the verbiage. It's all about standing. It's not about chasing the devil. You don't need devil chasers. They're out there. They make me really nervous. The last thing I want to do is chase the devil. I see enough of the devil all around me. I don't want to chase him. So I'm just going to stand, but I'm going to be ready for him when he comes to me. And after you've done everything to stand, this word, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist and the breastplate of righteousness in place and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, along with it, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And then verse 18, and we pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests with this in mind to be alert. Always keep on praying for all the saints. 
And then Paul says, I think it's almost parenthetical, tongue-in-cheek. He says, because of this spiritual warfare that he was involved in, pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, the words be given to me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in change. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Now, we've got to know your enemy and understand the context. Your enemy is the devil, not humans. As I said, this comes at the end of all these personal relationships. Now, for some of us here, it is very possible that you go, oh, wow, look at this morning that I come. Thank God they're not talking about money, but they're talking about the devil and demons and warfare and all this kind of stuff. Well, a, a lot of people really have a hard time with this because they believe it's probably just outdated, concocted, old-fashioned superstition. And if you believe in a purely materialistic universe where there is no God, where everything is simply the result of time plus matter plus chance, where human beings have no body, I mean, no soul or no spirit, well, then it's pretty easy not to believe in the devil and demonic forces. But how else can we understand the hate, the debauchery, the war, the, the stuff that we see all around us, that look, we look at it and we shake our head and go, my God, is there really a God or is, well, where does this come from? A lot of people hold this view of naturalism or materialism. But friends, if you believe there is a God, that God is spirit, that he has created people as spiritual beings, both human and angelic, then it's not hard to accept this whole understanding of what Isaiah and Ezekiel points to of how there was this rebellion against God in heaven and there was fallen angels. About a third of the angelic beings fell with this, what was probably the worship leader in heaven, Lucifer, known as Lucifer, Satan, Diablo, Beelzebub. Now you have to understand this if you believe that. I hope you do. The Bible teaches that. I believe that. We believe that here. But it's not as powerful as as your enemy is. He is not the antithesis of God. He is only the antithesis of God in terms of character, but not in power and strength. See, the world a lot of times believes in this thing called dualism, this yin and yang, where there's God and then there's Satan, and they're equal in power and strength but they're not. Satan is a created angelic being destined to die in ultimate damnation. And we have to understand that because sometimes we think, oh my gosh, who's going to win the war? No, it's already been won. We already won. There is an ultimate outcome. Now, some people say, well, you know, I still have a hard time believing this whole demon and devil thing. But listen, Jesus talked about it. As a matter of fact, we see where he talked to the devil. And he believed in both angelic beings, demonic beings, and the devil. And that wasn't necessarily inevitable that he had to believe that. See, there was this group of people in Jesus' day called the Sadducees. They were the liberal theological branch of of, of the church of that day. And they didn't believe in angelic beings. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in a lot of different things. So in Jesus' training as he was raised up at any point, he could have gone another direction. But he believed in it. He confronted it. He talked about it. And he warns us against it. 
You and I are in a spiritual battle with a real adversary who not only opposes God, but the God in you, and ultimately wants to oppose you and take you down because the proverb says that you're the apple of God's eye. You're the centerpiece. You and I are what he came, lived, and died for and resurrected and waits to see us. The psalm says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the passing of his loved ones. He is literally waiting in heaven for us to come and be with him. There's two extremes that the church deals with or people deal with. Number one, they totally discount, discount, they don't believe, but they ignore the truth of the devil's reality. And if you do that, it's going to be hard to make total sense of what's happening in your life and in this world. Or there's a group of people in the church that focus way too much energy and give too much credit and credence to him. You know, they see a demon and they see a problem in everything they face and it all comes from the devil instead of understanding most of the problems that we face really are of our own doing. It's because we may respond to the temptation or we may respond to the attacks of the enemy. But he has no power over you but that you give him. And that's where we have to live and understand and move. That's why he says stand firm, put on the full armor. And then he wants you to know that people aren't your enemy. He says there's powers and principalities of the air in the heavenly places. Most of us see our enemy as the people around us. But it's not. It's the enemy who victimizes people. The enemy's not our spouse. It's not our kids. It's not our boss. It's not our neighbors. But they are all systemic to the enemy of our soul, that the enemy has, can work through all of us at any point. See, too often people get redirected from the true enemy in the battle. I remember we were, it was years ago, we were getting ready to come to church. We lived up here. We first moved here. We were living up in these apartments. And it was just, it was just not a good evening. We had to come down here to church for some gathering, and uh, Jamie was going berserk. He was a little kid, and just going berserk, and Trina was acting like a, no, she was fine. I'm just kidding. Um, but I, I was just in a bad place. You know how you get there. And, and, and she said something, and Jamie was doing some stuff, and so I went after him, and then I came back and went after her, and, you know, there's this whole roaring thing going on, and it just hit me. This is stupid. You're stupid, you know, and and I finally I just I I, I said this is dumb. I, we got to go to church, and here we are. We're fighting, and I'm acting like a jerk. And I finally went over to Trina. I said, "Honey, listen. I just got to. I just. I think I took her by the hands, and I looked at. Her, I said, "Honey, you're not my enemy. The enemy is at work here because he knows we got to go do something in just a minute." And I said, "Let's pray against the enemy." And I said, "You're not my enemy. Forgive me." And then I went and I grabbed Jamie. He was just a little guy. Then I said, I just said, son, please forgive me for being so upset with you for such a small thing. And see, sometimes we get misdirected. And we forget that, that the enemy sets that up. His schemes, his plans, he establishes that. And then he sits back and laughs at you because you're such a loser. And then, he, and then the Bible says that he accuses you. Look at you. I thought you were a pastor, a good father, a decent husband. And then you walk away and you go, oh, I'm a loser. And that's how the enemy operates. And we've got to understand that. Paul wants us to know here, people are not the enemy. 
So you need to know some things about your enemy. Number one, he is powerful. Paul starts by telling us he's strong. He says, you be strong in the Lord because you can't face this enemy on your own. You've got to put on this full armor of God, and then you've got to stand. Don't chase him. Don't fight him. Just stand and take him on. Why be strong and armored? Because your enemy's powerful. He literally has oversight in this world. Jesus basically agreed with him in chapter 4 of Matthew and Luke. He said, yeah, you've got control of this world, but it is limited, and there is a time frame to it. And he is the prince and the power of this world now, yet he still cannot do anything beyond what God allows to take place. 1 Peter 5, 8, Paul compare, uh, Peter compares him to a roaring lion looking for someone to take over and devour. It's a pretty malicious, powerful picture that he literally is looking for people that he can take down, tear apart, and destroy. But we have to understand again that he is no match for God. See, God has been eternal, will be eternal. The devil is finite and created by the eternal God. God is omnipotent, all-powerful. He's omnipresent everywhere. He is omniscient, all-knowing. The devil is omni-nothing. He is so limited other than the influence and the power that we give him. Every time he faced Jesus, it was no contest, hands down. Jesus won, spoke the word, pointed something out, declared something. Why? 1 John 4, 4 says this, the greater is he that is in me, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. We don't have to succumb to. We don't have to give in to the wiles and the schemes of this enemy. He is powerful, but not more powerful than our God. He is evil. Verse 12, Paul describes in his powers of this dark world, spiritual forces of evil. Jesus gives us more information about our enemy. John 10, 10, he says that this enemy, the devil, comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Notice the major verbs of what his intent is for your life and for mine. Kill, kill steal, destroy. Jesus says in 8, 4, John 8, 44, he was a murderer from the beginning. He doesn't hold to the truth. When he lies, I love this, he speaks his native language. It's all he knows. He's the father of lies. If you knew there was a murderer in town, what would you do? You would stay away from them. If you knew there was a liar about you, you wouldn't listen to him, would you? But we have a tendency to perk up. He's cunning. Note where to take our stand against the devil's schemes. The Greek word there means cunning is, is devices, craftiness, trickery. Maybe the idea of he comes up with a schematic. It's a trap set for your and my demise. Now, he is not omniscient. He can't read your mind, but his emissaries can hear your talking and your thoughts. That's why it's so important, loved ones, why we watch what we say. I believe it's Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, right around in there, where it says that, that the enemy of this world, that he basically watches and listens to what the church is saying. And I believe that's why the church has so many stinking troubles, because we gossip and we complain. I'm not saying our church. I'm just saying the church in general. We, 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 we say all these things. 
We do all these things and the enemy watches and then he begins to use those as seeds to plant them and to use them against the church. That's why you see so many churches split. You see so many churches have problems because we can't control our mouth and we give the enemy inroads and evil opportunities to work in us and through us instead of being the light that stems the tide of evil and cunning and darkness. I gave you a few scriptures about his cunning. Uh, 2 Corinthians 2.11, Paul says, I forgive so that Satan might not outwit me and be unaware of his schemes. What he's saying there is he says, I want to make sure that I am forgiving because I don't want to give the enemy a foothold into my life. You know, I know, we know bitterness and, 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 and grudges and all of those things cause significant problems in relationships. And the more you carry that stuff, the more difficult it is to relate rightly to the people around you. 2 Corinthians eleven three and 4, it says, Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning. Remember in, uh, in Genesis chapter 3, 1 through 5, who did the enemy go to? To Eve. Is it because she was a silly dilly and she couldn't think? No! Uh, some preachers make you think that, don't they? Oh, you know, the woman, she was just gullible. No! I think she was really smart. And can I tell you what else I think? I think that she had such a love for God because she walked with him in the cool of the day. And when the enemy came to her and said, if you, if you take this, you'll be like God, I think her heart was, that's what I want. I want to be more like this God that I'm walking with. Do you see how cunning he is? He used her spirituality, her desire to be like God against her. And where did she get tripped up? Well, she didn't pay attention to the word that God had already spoken to her. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen says that Satan masquerades as an angel of light. See, most of us don't fall anymore for the straight, you know, uh, go out on your spouse and have an affair or, you know, just all of a sudden, oh, oh, look at her, look at him, Woo, boom, you know. It's now we deal with the subtleties that the enemy comes and says, you know something? You better start looking out for yourself. You're not getting what you need. That person's not treating you very well, are they? And pretty soon there's this cunning, there's this subtle attack and breaking down. And you begin to think, you know, you're right. I'm not getting what I need. I'm not getting what I want. I'm not being taken care of. And that's the cunning work of the adversary. And he comes as this light. You need more. You're worth more. So what does he say? Suit up for battle. Be strong in the Lord because you can't do this on your own, loved ones. You need somebody stronger, smarter, and more equipped than you. James 4, 7 says, draw near to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. And when you live God first, can I tell you something? You will be strengthened and the enemy can't win. If you are losing, it's because you're probably not living God first. And you're giving these opportunities. Uh, Ephesians 4 talked about the landing places of the enemy in your life. So put on and suit up in God's armor. In these days, the battle, in, in those days that Paul's talking about, the battle was oftentimes hand-to-hand combat. 
So they had to suit up in this armor for full protection. And Paul probably saw a guard sitting there watching over him. And he's saying, oh, yeah, look at this armor. This is what I've got. This is how we as Christ followers have got to suit up. Or he might have been reflecting uh, on this passage in the book of Isaiah where it talks about military and, and armor as well. But he's describing the armor here, and he says, this is what I want you to put on. Hear me. Listen, everybody. This is important. You know I am committed, and we're working to get uh, some momentum again behind our growth groups and to get them going and get them launched and off the ground, and we're working to get leaders for that. I believe in growth groups. They're one of the five main ministry focal points of our church to help us grow and move forward in discipleship. But hear me. Church cannot be, it cannot be just a little love group. It cannot be a little kumbaya, our four and no more kind of group. The reason so many people fail and fall in their Christianity is because they don't suit up. They want to have all the kumbaya, the warm fuzzies, the come on, build me up, make me feel good. And they don't want to put on and strap on the armor and begin to fight. Life is not a playground, but our life is a battleground. And if we don't begin to see it and respond to it that way, and I don't mean like, oh, keep it heavy. Oh, everything's bad. No, but there's a sense and a responsiveness that says we've got to take this thing seriously. And it's not just coming back slapping, but we got to slap some backs and say, hey, how are you doing? It's part of the reason we're doing Band of Brothers and Soul Sisters. So it isn't just coming and studying and hoping we learn something, but it's what is God saying to you and what are you going to do about it? Because we can talk about what God says, but ultimately, if you're not going to do it, give it up. You're going to fall. And we want to challenge people. Are you growing? Are you committed to what God is saying for you to do? Because it's not a playground. And I love to enjoy life as much as anybody, but I don't want to be one of these guys that falls and doesn't finish. I don't want to become a statistic that people go, wow, man, he started good. What in the world happened to him? Oh, the devil must have got him. Well, maybe, but it's probably because I didn't respond to the devil in the power of Christ. Can you imagine if on D-Day they would have wore pajamas onto the beach at Normandy? <laughs> Come on, let's get it. I don't, can't strap it up yet. Let's, we got to hurry. Let's, they throw on their jammies. They would have been dead. And some of... Well, some of us in this room, we're wearing our jammies all the time in this battle. And we haven't strapped it up. And we're not serious about the battleground that God's called us to. So what do we got to strap on? Well, the first thing he talks about is the belt of truth. Now, this belt isn't really a piece of armor, but it's underwear. It's actually kind of like the original Under Armour, you know, the commercial. Under the armor, a man wore a tunic and a, and a belt that gathered this long tunic, this flowing tunic, and he held it in place uh, for, so he could have freedom of movement and be uninhibited. It was this hidden foundation that gave this man confidence and strength to keep everything in place, keep it cinched up, tightened up. It's interesting because what did it cover? It really covered his loins. Some of your translations say loins, gird up your loins. That's a place of reproduction. What are you reproducing in terms of truth? 
Do you really know what God says? Or are you just kind of reproducing this, that, and the other out there, what everybody's saying, the conventional wisdom of the day? He says, I want you to cinch it up. Because see, the truth is the seat of life for Christ's followers. It is central to who we are in our lives. Our lives depend on the truth of God's word. Why is it so important? Because it frustrates Satan. Remember what his kingdom is built on, birthed on, and built up on? Lies, murder, and deception. That's how he gets us. Lies and deception. So you combat that, we combat that with truth. Because there is, while his power is limited, there's great power in lies when? When somebody believes it. If I tell you a lie and you, and you hear it long enough and you begin to believe it, it will begin to have power over you. When lies become our reality, they have power. But when we get truth and to know the truth, what does Jesus say? It will set you free. Not the truth, but you've got to know the truth. Then when you know it, it will begin to set you free. Haven't many of you experienced that here in different dimensions of your life? Some of you believe the lies of the enemy, that you were too far gone, that God could never love you, that God could never forgive you. Some of you may even be believing today God's holding back from you, that he's, he's just kind of this God that doesn't really care about you. Can I tell you something, loved ones? Some of you experience, looking back, you go, God, what a lie. And now that you've moved beyond that, the truth has set you free and given you so much hope, so much freedom to become who God called you to be and to experience forgiveness. And now you say, ah, love, acceptance, forgiveness by God. That's what truth is meant to do. But when, you, when we deal with truth, loved ones, we have to face the reality of it. I counseled people I mean, hundreds of couples over the years. And it's always interesting because it's, I just, you know, I'll, I'll do a composite. But I'll meet with the wife maybe first, and she says, oh, pastor, it, you know, Mary's going to hell in a handbasket. So she brings in a couple of kids, and she's stressed out, and she says, I'm feeling all alone. I feel like I'm raising these kids by myself. My husband won't communicate, works all the time, doesn't seem to care. He's getting more and more distant from me every day. He's focused on his work, and I don't even know where he is with God. Anything else? Yeah, but we'll get to that later. I mean, you know. So a couple days later, I'll meet, you know, I finally hook up with the husband, and he comes in, and I go, Well, how you doing? Oh, it's good. It's good. Really? How good? Good. Well, it's a little busy at work. I'm pretty, you know, I'm pretty stressed there, but it's, it, it'll pass. Well, tell me about how, how's things going in the home. Oh, the home. Oh, it's, it's, it's good. Well, it's, you know, again, it's a little busy, but overall, it's per- pretty good. Pretty good. Pretty good. And I go, well, how good is it? Well, you know, I just love my wife, and I know she loves me, and, you know, we're just, we're just working through stuff, but it's good. And so then, probably a week later, I'll bring them together. And I'll go, Bob, I'd like to introduce you to Sue. <laughs> because I don't think you really know each other. And it always amazes me how that works. Now, this is, I've, I've rode this rodeo long enough that this is what I know. I know that it's probably never as bad as the woman says it is, and it's never as good as the man thinks it is. Okay, that's the truth. 
But it's amazing to me how two people can live together, share life, and not understand their personal reality. Did you know that for those people to have any hope in their marriage, they have to face the truth and define their reality and take responsibility? Because if they don't, the enemy will continue to use the untruth the misunderstanding of what's taking place there, they'll be fighting each other instead of being able to come together and say, listen, we've got to look at our reality. And some of us have got to start taking, one of us, both of us, have got to start taking responsibility for where we are or we're going to destroy something that God brought us together that was very precious. But I'm amazed at how people don't want to define their reality. I'm going to say today in the annual meeting, a leader has to define the reality. And if you want a good marriage, if you want good kids, there's no guarantees, but you've got to start by defining the reality of where you are. You have to understand things are not the way you hope for them to be, but the way they are. Your enemy doesn't want you to face the truth and take responsibility. He wants you to deny it, deflect it, and make your issues somebody else's so you can blame anybody and everybody but you. That'll preach. Because it's truth. I wouldn't be such a troubled person if it wasn't for you. We'd have a happy marriage if it wasn't for you. Really? I'd be a better person if it wasn't for my parents. Maybe. But take responsibility and change it. I had a girl call me this week. She's 32 years old. Her family grew up in, in this church, and her parents, 19 years ago, got divorced, I think when she was 12 years old. Haven't heard from her. She calls me. And she says to me, Pat, I just want to talk to you. Find out how you're doing, how church is going. You know, this is back when we had 40 or 50 people. And um, she goes, you know, remember when my parents got divorced? I go, yeah, I remember real well. She goes, you know, I'm kind of struggling with that now, almost 20 years later. And I said, well, really? Tell me about it. She goes, well, you know, I just really think the church and you could have done a lot more. I said, Really? Now, now, hear me, I'm gonna, because this, this, she was very sweet about it. She really, it sounds a little bit accusatory, but it really wasn't. She was just sharing her heart, and so I could go with it and really work with her. But she said, you know, I really think you and the church could have done a lot more. And to get our family back there and to get, you know, make sure the kids came to church and, you know, healed us and helped us through it. I said, well, honey, let me, let, let me give you my perspective First of all, your, your mother had an affair. And once she had that affair, she didn't want anything to do with me or the church. Who'd you live with most of the time? Well, my mom. Oh, really? And she didn't bring you to church? No. But she wouldn't come here and talk to us to help work out what happened because the father still wanted to reconcile and work it out. And honey, I want you to know, I spent hours and hours and hours with your father who ultimately stayed in the church, and I ended up, he got married later. After an hour's conversation, what it really distilled down to is she was hurt. 
she felt like the church let her and her family down. And I had to correct her and say, honey, listen, as long as you believe that based on everything that I told you, I wasn't defensive, I wasn't even defending the church, I was just saying there wasn't anything else we could do because of where your parents were. And I said, honey, and I say this with great love and respect and pastoral care. If you allow that thinking to continue in your life, that your family was a victim in this church, or by God, or what we, then your life will continue to be a victim. And the church that you're in right now will soon let you down because they didn't do what you expect. And can I tell you what it is? That is one of the greatest tricks and tools of the enemy, is to come with untruth and not have you take responsibility for your part in either where you were, what you did, or where you're going to end up. We are a victim society. And hear me, I feel greatly for people that have been products of divorce. I went through two of them with my family, but I cannot look back and go, oh, if only. I would be such a better pastor. What's that going to do for me? What's it going to do for you? Don't allow the enemy to... Take untruth and make it an undertow to your life. Some of you would say, well, if my spouse would just change, we wouldn't have this problem. Really, belly up to the mirror and ask yourself, what do you need to change to help your spouse change? It's so easy to lie in our culture. We have a culture of deception with few absolutes. Expediency becomes more important than truth. And God places us in our homes, our community, and our work to be standard truth bearers so that we don't allow into those areas satanic influence. And listen, loved ones, we need to pray, Jesus, your word is truth. Let your truth dwell in me. Our belt, loved ones, he says, is truth. This is a good reason for knowing God's word, so that you can combat the lies. No, I can't blame this person, that person, this family, those. I've got to take responsibility. Secondly, he says, the breastplate of righteousness. This covered a soldier's heart. And this is what righteousness has to do with. It covers your heart, your righteousness. Listen, loved ones, it comes from Jesus Christ. Isaiah says that we have been covered over with robes of righteousness. But how is that taken care of? When you come to Jesus, you are a righteous person before God. Now you get to begin to live like it in your daily life. It begins to change your desires and your directions to where now you make determinations and decisions to live out the righteousness that Jesus Christ has given you because I want to be like him. Now you may do something wrong. You may make mistakes. We all do. We're not sinless. But because you now have a right heart that is based on righteousness, guess what? Well, you deal with it. You make changes with it. You don't cover it up, but you uncover it, and you move in Christ's grace for the ultimate healing. Remember the story of David and Saul, two kings? God comes and he chooses Saul, but he soon regrets it. But because he made the decision, he stayed with it. Saul looked good, but he wasn't. David didn't look good like a king, but he became a great king. 
Saul didn't have the heart of a king. David had, but David had the heart of God. Saul never took responsibility for anything he did wrong, even though he was caught and cornered. Some of you that are Bible students remember the story. When he was confronted by Samuel, God had said, I want you to go and destroy the Amalekites, everything. Everything. The good, the bad, the ugly, the kids, the mothers, the wives, the soldiers, everything. And that's a whole other talk. I won't get into that, why God said that. But what did, what did he do? What did King Saul do? King Saul, he kept the best of the sheep. He kept King Agag. Agag. And so Samuel comes and he, he goes, Saul, did you do everything that the Lord had said? And Saul, he stands up and he goes, yes, I did. Everything's taken care of, paraphrasing here. And all of a sudden, there's these, bah, bah. And, 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 and Samuel goes, dude, what's the bleeding of sheep? Oh, oh, um, yeah, well, the, the sheep, yeah. What does he say? The people. It was the people. They made me do it. They talked me into it. What does he do? He shifts the blame for his disobedience. He wasn't a good king. When he was caught in other things, he always passed and he blamed. He finally said, yes, I sinned. But when, he, he, when, when, when Samuel said, you sinned, Saul said, yes, I sinned, but he used a little bit different word. He kind of used this word that was kind of like, well, yeah, it was, it was, it was a little teensy-weensy sin. It wasn't a big thing. And don't we do that? See, righteousness says, yes, I have sinned. When David was caught in his adultery, you know what he said? He said, yes, I am broken. He fell down when he was confronted, and he said, I have sinned before God and man. And see, loved ones, when we live in righteousness that protects our heart like that, we are going to do and live to make the right decisions. Romans 8.1 says, There's now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because it's not about our righteousness, but the righteousness that Jesus has given to us. And then we begin to live that out every day, making decisions. And because of his power and his armor, when we're walking in it in relationship, guess what? Oh, we may stumble, but we will never fall. And we don't have to fall to the schematics, the schemes, the cunning of the enemy of our soul. Next thing he says is the readiness of peace. Some translations use readiness and, prepar- and, and they use the word preparation and firmness. It has to do with what you're standing on. The Roman soldier wore a boot that was made of leather and heavy studded shoes, almost like a football shoe today, except it went up above his calf. This gave him sure footing in unstable places in battle. And I wonder if Paul doesn't mean that the gospel, the good news that Jesus gives us, gives us a firm footing for life and for fighting evil that comes our way. It's a solid foundation that he wants us to live on. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the peacemakers. He says, you walk, you fight in readiness of peace. See, when you walk into good news, what's the good news? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news is all about what Jesus Christ has done. Can I tell you what you will do? You will be a peacemaker. You will come in to resolve conflict, not cause it. When you enter into an angry arena, a divisive place, your presence will promote peace not discord, whether it's school, neighborhood, church, 
politics. You're not going to add fuel to the fire by bringing a gallon of gas. You're going to bring a hose of water, and you're going to begin to do everything you can to put it out and to, to extinguish it so there's a peaceful place and God's perspective that comes into it. How many people do you know? And there's people in church. drives me crazy. That when they hear any smack, any scent of anything, they want to get into the goodies. Oh, did you hear? Whenever there's an announcement, like when Blake left, there's always people that want to come and find out. Okay. Is he really leaving for that reason? Or did he get fired? Or did he get mad? Or what happened? I cannot believe people. I, I'm going I'm to be real unpacked. I just want to go up and throttle them. I'm not kidding. I want to go, what are you thinking? That's the devil in you. And I, I'm going to tell somebody that sometime. Because I heard someone, after, after we made the announcement with Blake, someone walked out and go, oh. I kind of had this like, whoa, what do you really think about that? Someone told me that. And I go, that's the kind of, I'm not kidding you. They've they got a devil in them. No, I'm, I'm serious. That is the devil. Because the devil comes to cast accusation and cause doubt in something that is holy and right and good. And then there's people that just want to, oh, let me get into that. That's the devil in you. Okay, I'll just tell you that. Come out of that devil, Terry. Sometimes, you know, we've got to do that. You've got to know your enemy. You want to bring peace. When you walk, you are planted in that place to bring peace. Satan's schemes cannot have an operating base in your life in this place. In a world full of discord, division, corruption, and anxiety, if you bring the spirit of Jesus Christ into it. Too many people come looking for a problem, looking for a fight, instead of looking to say, what would Jesus want to do here? If you go tomorrow and you do that at your work, you will begin to change the culture there, I promise you. That's why generally the healthy culture of Creekside is that we really do everything we can to make sure that, that, that people aren't being divisive and gossipy. I'm going to stop right here. I don't want to rush through these because these are some important things, loved ones, that I want to make sure that we understand as a church but also that you understand for your life. Father, we come today, Lord. We are not fearful of the enemy. We are going to walk in victory. And I pray, God, that there will be people today and this week that because of their understanding of the victory that we have in you, we begin to identify these subtle and cunning attacks of the enemy that simply comes to put us in a in a spiritual riptide where we cannot move forward, we cannot get out of where we are. Give us truth. Give us righteous hearts. Lord, let us walk in the power of your life. I pray, Lord, for victory for every person here this morning that would be struggling, battling, or fighting through something. Let the peace of God come into their life and let them work and walk and live in the victory that your cross brings. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.